Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me this evening. The story is told of various people, but it's true about tonight's French author. He hated the Eiffel Tower, and yet he often ate lunch at the restaurant at its base. He wasn't partial to the food served there. When asked why he frequented the tower that he so despised, he responded that he chose to eat at this restaurant because it was the only place in Paris from which he couldn't see its otherwise unavoidable profile. He was Henri-René Albert-Guy de Maupassant, who lived from 1850 to 1893. He was a master of the short story form. Maupassant was a protégé of Flaubert, and his stories are noted for their economy of style and efficient, effortless storylines. He wrote some 300 short stories, six novels, three travel books, and one volume of verse. His first published story, Boule de Suif, Butterball, 1880, is often considered his masterpiece. It has been said that his characters inhabit a world of material desires and sensual appetites in which lust, greed, and ambition are the driving forces, and any higher feelings are either absent or doomed to cruel disappointment. He doesn't pass any moral judgment on them, but always notes the word, the gesture, or even the silences that betray each one's essential personality. His stories have been said to present a comprehensive picture of French life from 1870 to 1890. Perhaps you will say he is cynical. Let me know what you think. The Graveyard Sisterhood by Guy de Maupassant The five friends had nearly finished their dinner. They were all rich, middle-aged men of the world, two of them bachelors, three married men. They met like this once a month, in memory of their younger days, and after dinner chatted together until two in the morning. These evenings were some of the happiest in their lives, for they had remained close friends and enjoyed one another's company. Their conversation was about anything and everything that interests and amuses Parisians. As in most drawing-rooms, it was a sort of spoken recapitulation of the morning papers. One of the gayest of the five, Joseph de Bardon, was a bachelor. He lived the Parisian life in the most thorough and whimsical fashion, without being either debauched or depraved. It interested him, and, as he was still young, being scarcely forty, he enjoyed it to the full. A man of the world in the widest and best sense of the word, he possessed a great deal of wit, without much depth, varied knowledge without real erudition, and quick understanding without serious penetration, and his observations and adventures, his experiences and encounters furnished him with amusing anecdotes of a comical and philosophical nature which earned him a considerable reputation in society as an intelligent man. He was the after-dinner speaker of the group, always having a story to tell which the others looked forward to hearing. He began telling one now without being asked. Smoking a cigar, with his elbows on the table and a half-full glass of liqueur brandy in front of his plate, lulled by the smoky atmosphere filled with the fragrance of hot coffee, he seemed completely at ease, just as certain beings are perfectly at ease in certain places and at certain times, a nun in a chapel, for instance, or a goldfish in its bowl. Between two puffs of his cigar, he said, "'I had a strange adventure a little while ago.' The others said, with almost a single voice, "'Tell us about it.' 
"'Gladly,' he said. "'You know that I love wandering round Paris "'like a collector peering into shop windows. "'I, for my part, enjoy watching people and things, "'everything that's happening and everything that's passing by. "'Well, about the middle of September, "'when we were having a spell of very fine weather, "'I went out one afternoon without knowing where I was going. "'We men always have a vague desire to call on some pretty woman. "'We review our gallery of acquaintances,' we compare them in our mind, we gauge their relative charms and the interest they arouse in us, and we finally choose the one who attracts us most. But when the sun is shining brightly and the air is warm, we often lose all desire to pay calls. That day the sun was shining brightly and the air was warm, so I just lit a cigar and went for a stroll along the outer boulevard. Then, as I sauntered along, The idea occurred to me of going to have a look round the Montmartre Cemetery. I like cemeteries, you know. They sadden me and soothe my nerves, and I need something to do that. Besides, there are some good friends of mine there, friends nobody goes to see any more, so I go to see them now and then. As it happens, in that very cemetery, I once buried an old romance, a mistress of mine to whom I was greatly attached, a charming little woman whose memory not only grieves me deeply, but awakens regrets in my heart. All kinds of regrets. I go and dream beside her grave. It's all over for her. I like cemeteries, too, because they are huge, densely populated cities. Just think of all the bodies in that small space, of all the generations of Parisians lodged there forever, troglodytes eternally imprisoned in their little vaults, in little holes covered with a stone or marked by a cross, while the living, fools that they are, take up so much room and make so much noise. Again, in cemeteries you can find monuments that are almost as interesting as those you find in museums. Though I wouldn't compare the two works, Cavignac's tomb reminded me of that masterpiece of Jean Goujon, the statue of Louis de Brézé in the underground chapel in Rouen Cathedral. Gentlemen, all so-called modern, realistic art started there. That statue of the dead Louis de Brézé is more convincing, more terrible, more suggestive of inanimate flesh, still convulsed by the death agony, than any of the tortured corpses you see on modern tombs. But in the Montmartre Cemetery you can still admire the monument to Baudin, which is quite impressive, Gautier's tomb and Murger's the other day I saw a poor, solitary wreath of yellow immortelles. Who do you think laid it there? Perhaps the last of the grisette, an old woman who has become a concierge in the neighborhood. It's a pretty little statue by Millet, but spoiled by dirt and neglect. Sing the joys of youth, Milger. So there I was, going into the Montmartre Cemetery, and suddenly filled with sadness, a sadness which didn't hurt too much, as it happened, the sort of sadness which makes a healthy man think, this isn't a very cheerful place, but at least it isn't time yet for me to come here. The feeling of autumn, that warm dampness which evokes the idea of dead leaves and tired, anemic sunshine, intensified and poeticized the sense of solitude and finality surrounding that place, which evokes the idea of dead men. I wandered slowly along those streets of tombs where the neighbors never call on each other, no longer sleep together, and don't read the papers, and I started reading the epitaphs. 
let me assure you that nothing in the whole world could be more amusing. La Biche and Mayac have never made me laugh as much as that tombstone prose. <laughs> Those crosses and marble slabs on which the relatives of the dead have poured out their grief, their wishes for the happiness of the departed in the next world, and their longing to rejoin their loved one, the hypocrites, make funnier reading than any book by Paul de Kock. But what I love most of all in that cemetery is the deserted, lonely part planted with great yew-trees and cypresses, the old district inhabited by those who died long ago. For soon it will once again become a new district, and the green trees nourished by human corpses will be felled to make room for the recently departed to be lined up under little marble slabs. After I had wandered about long enough to refresh my mind, I realized that I was in danger of getting bored, and that it was time for me to go to the last bed of my sometime mistress and pay her the faithful tribute of my memory. My heart was heavy as I reached her grave. The poor darling was so sweet and loving, so fair and lovely. And now, if her grave were opened... Bending over the iron railing, I whispered a few sorrowful words to her, which she probably never heard and I was about to walk away when I saw a woman in deep mourning kneeling down in front of the next grave. Her crepe veil had been thrown back to reveal a pretty head of fair hair which looked like a bright dawn under the dark night of her headdress. I stayed where I was. She was obviously in the grip of profound sorrow. She had buried her face in her hands and was deep in meditation, holding herself as rigid as a statue. Absorbed in her grief, and telling the painful beads of memory behind her closed and hidden eyes, she seemed herself like a corpse, mourning a corpse. Then, all of a sudden, from a slight movement of her back like a willow stirring in the wind, I guessed that she was going to cry. She wept gently at first, then more violently, her neck and shoulders shaking. Suddenly, she uncovered her eyes, they were full of tears and quite charming. She looked around her frantically, as if awakening from a nightmare. She saw me gazing at her, looked embarrassed, and hid her face again in her hands. Then she burst into convulsive sobs, and her head slowly bent towards the marble tombstone. She rested her forehead on it, and her veil, falling around her, covered the white corners of the beloved sepulchre like a new mourning cloth. I heard her moan, and then she collapsed with her cheek against the tombstone and lay there motionless and unconscious. I rushed over, slapped her hands, and breathed on her eyelids, at the same time reading the simple epitaph on the tombstone. Here lies Louis Theodore Carrel, captain in the Marine Light Infantry, killed by the enemy in Tonkin. Pray for his soul. This death had occurred only a few months earlier, I was moved to tears, and I redoubled my efforts to revive her. At last they succeeded, and she came too. I am not a bad-looking fellow, I'm not forty yet, and at that moment I looked extremely upset. I realized from her first glance that she was likely to be polite and grateful. I was not disappointed, and between further tears and sobs she told me about the officer who had been killed in Tonkin after they had been married only a year. He had married her for love, and she was an orphan and possessed nothing but her dowry. I consoled her, comforted her, lifted her up, 
and helped her to her feet. Then I said, "'You can't stay here. Come along.' "'I'm incapable of walking,' she murmured. "'Let me help you. Thank you, monsieur, you are very kind. Did you come here to mourn someone?' "'Yes, madame.' "'Your wife?' "'A mistress.' "'A man may love a mistress as much as a wife, for passion knows no law.' "'Yes, madame,' I replied. And we walked away together, she leaning on me, and I almost carrying her along the alleys. As we left the cemetery, she murmured, "'I think I'm going to faint. "'Would you like to go somewhere and take something to revive you?' "'Yes, monsieur.' I noticed a restaurant nearby, one of those restaurants where the friends of the dead go to celebrate the end of their mournful duty. We went in, and I made her drink a cup of hot tea, which seemed to restore her strength. A faint smile came to her lips, and she started telling me about herself. It was so sad, she said, to be all alone in the world, to be alone at home day and night, to have nobody any more to whom she could give her love, trust, and intimacy. This all seemed sincere and sounded well on her lips. I felt my heart softening. She was very young, perhaps twenty. I paid her a few compliments, which she accepted gracefully. Then, as it was getting late, I offered to take her home in a cab. She accepted. In the cab we were so close to each other that we could feel the warmth of our bodies through our clothes, which is really the most disturbing thing in the world. When the cab drew up in front of her house, she murmured, "'I don't feel capable of walking upstairs by myself, for I live on the fourth floor. You have already been so kind to me. Will you give me your arm as far as my apartment?' I gladly agreed. She walked up slowly, breathing hard. Then, outside her door, she added, "'Do come in for a few minutes so that I can thank you.' And I went in. Her apartment was modest, even rather poor, but simply and tastefully furnished. We sat down side by side on a little sofa, and she began talking to me again about her loneliness. She rang for her maid to offer me a drink, but the girl didn't come. I was delighted, concluding that this maid probably came only in the morning and was really just a cleaning woman. She had taken off her hat. She was so charming with her limpid eyes fixed upon me so clear and steady, that I was seized by a terrible temptation to which I succumbed. I clasped her in my arms and kissed her again and again on her eyelids, which she had promptly lowered. She struggled to free herself, pushing me away and repeating, Please, please, please. What did she mean by that word? In such circumstances, please could have at least two meanings. To silence her, I passed from her eyes to her lips, and gave the word please the conclusion I preferred. She didn't resist overmuch, and when we looked at each other again after this insult to the memory of the captain killed in Tonkin, she had a languorous expression of tender resignation which dispelled my misgivings. I showed my gratitude by being gallant and attentive. After further conversation lasting about an hour, I asked her, "'Where do you usually dine?' in a little restaurant near here. All alone? Why, yes. Will you have dinner with me? Where? In a good restaurant on the boulevard. She demurred, but I insisted, and she finally gave way, 
consoling herself with the argument that she was bored and lonely. Then she added, I must put on a dress that isn't so dark. She went into her bedroom, and when she came out, she was in half-mourning, wearing a very simple gray dress which made her look slim and charming. She obviously had different outfits for town and cemetery. Dinner was very pleasant. She drank some champagne and became very animated and lively. I went back to her apartment with her. This liaison begun among the tombstones lasted about three weeks, but men grow tired of everything, and especially of women. I left her on the pretext of an unavoidable journey. I was very generous when we parted, and she was very grateful. She made me promise and even swear that I would come back on my return to Paris, for she really seemed to care for me a little. I lost no time in forming other attachments, and about a month went by without the temptation to resume that funereal affair becoming strong enough for me to yield to it. However, I had not forgotten her. The memory of her haunted me like a mystery, a psychological problem, one of those inexplicable questions which nag at you for an answer. I don't know why, but one day it occurred to me that I might find her in the Montmartre Cemetery, so I went back there. I walked around for a long time without meeting anyone but the usual visitors to the place, mourners who had not yet broken off all relations with their dead. The tomb of the captain killed in Tonkin had no weeping woman kneeling beside it, and no flowers or wreaths on the marble slab. But as I was walking through another district of that great city of the dead, I suddenly saw a couple in deep mourning coming towards me down a narrow avenue lined with crosses, to my amazement, when they drew near, I recognized her. She saw me and blushed. As I brushed past her, she gave me a little signal, a little glance which meant, Don't recognize me, but which also seemed to say, Come back and see me, my darling. The man with her was about fifty years old, distinguished and well-dressed, with a rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honor, and he was supporting her, just as I had supported her when we left the cemetery together. I went off dumbfounded, puzzling over what I had just seen, and wondering to what race of creatures that graveyard huntress belonged. Was she just an ordinary whore, an inspired prostitute who visited graveyards to pick up unhappy men haunted by the loss of a wife or mistress and troubled by the memory of past caresses? Was she unique? Or were there several like her? Was it a profession, a graveyard sisterhood, who walked the cemeteries as others walked the streets? Or had she alone hit upon that admirable idea, that profoundly philosophical notion of exploiting the amorous regrets awakened in those mournful places? I would have dearly loved to know whose widow she had chosen to be that day. THE DECORATION Some people are born with a predominant instinct, a sense of vocation, or simply a desire which is aroused as soon as they begin to speak or think. Ever since he was a child, Monsieur Sacrement had had only one idea in his head, to be decorated. As a little boy he used to wear a zinc cross of the Legion of Honor, just as other children wear a soldier's cap and he took his mother's hand proudly in the street, puffing out his little chest, 
decorated with the red ribbon and the metal star. After an undistinguished career at school, he failed in the baccalaureate examination, and, not knowing what to do with himself, he married a pretty girl, for he had ample private means. They lived in Paris, like other well-to-do people of the upper-middle class, mixing with people of their own set without going into society, proud of knowing a deputy who might one day become a minister, and numbering two permanent secretaries among their friends. However, the idea which had entered Monsieur Sacrement's head during his formative years still haunted him, and he felt perpetually unhappy because he had not the right to wear the little colored ribbon in his buttonhole. Meeting people on the boulevard who were decorated was like a blow to the heart for him. He would eye them surreptitiously with a feeling of intense jealousy. Sometimes, during long afternoons when he had nothing to do, he would start counting them, saying to himself, Let's see how many I'll meet between the Madeleine and the Rue de Rouault. He would walk along slowly, inspecting every coat, with an eye practiced in spotting the little patch of red. When he reached the end of his walk, he was always astonished at the number he had counted. Eight officers and seventeen chevaliers. As many as that! It's ridiculous, distributing crosses wholesale like that. Let's see if I meet as many on the way back. And he would slowly walk back the way he had come, upset when the crowd of hurrying passers-by interfered with his investigation and made it possible that he might miss somebody. He knew the districts where the largest numbers were to be found. There were dozens of them in the Palais Royal. There were not so many in the Avenue de l'Opéra as in the Rue de la Paix, while the right side of the boulevard was better patronized than the left. They also seemed to prefer certain cafés and certain theatres, when M. Sacrement caught sight of a group of white-haired old gentlemen standing in the middle of the pavement in everybody's way, he would say to himself, they must be officers of the Legion of Honor, and he felt tempted to take off his hat to them. He had often observed that the officers had a different bearing from mere chevaliers. They carried their heads higher. You could tell that they enjoyed greater official consideration and exercised wider influence. Sometimes, too, M. Sacrement was seized with a furious rage against everybody who was decorated. He felt a socialistic hatred for them. Then, when he got home, as excited by the sight of so many crosses as a poor starving wretch is after passing a big food shop, he would ask loudly, When are we going to be rid of this wretched government? His wife would ask in surprise, What's the matter with you today? It makes me furious, he would reply, to see all the injustices that are committed everywhere. Oh, the communards were right, and no mistake. But after dinner he would leave the house again, and go and look at the window displays of the shops which sold decorations. He would examine all the emblems of different shapes and various colors. He would have liked to possess them all, and to be able to walk at the head of a procession in a public ceremony through a vast hall crowded with gaping people, with his opera hat under his arm, and his chest ablaze with decorations, rows of them in brochettes, following the line of his ribs, and shining like a star in the midst of admiring whispers and respectful murmurs. Alas, he had done nothing to qualify for any decoration whatever. The Legion of Honor, he told himself, 
is really too difficult for anybody to obtain unless he is a civil servant. But what if I tried to get appointed an officer of the academy? Unfortunately, he had no idea how to set about it. He mentioned the problem to his wife, who was flabbergasted. An officer of the academy? What have you done to deserve that? Try and understand what I'm saying, he retorted angrily. What I want to know is how to set about it. Sometimes you really are too stupid for words. You're quite right, she answered with a smile, but I don't know what to suggest. An idea occurred to him. Suppose you had a word with Monsieur Rosselin, he said. As a deputy, he might be able to advise me what to do. You realize that I daren't broach the subject directly with him. It's rather delicate, rather difficult. But coming from you, it would seem quite natural. Madame Sacrement did as he asked. Monsieur Rosselin promised to speak to the minister about it. Then Sacrement started pestering him, and finally the deputy told him that he would have to make an official application and list his qualifications. But what qualifications did he possess? That was the trouble. He didn't even have a baccalaureate. All the same, he set to work and began writing a pamphlet entitled The People's Right to Education. He was unable to finish it for want of ideas. He looked for some easier subjects and tackled several in succession. The first was Educating Children Through the Eyes. He suggested setting up free theaters in the poorer districts of Paris for the benefit of little children. Their parents would take them there when they were very young, and by means of a magic lantern they would be given some idea of every aspect of human knowledge. These visits would be regular lectures. The eyes would educate the mind, and the pictures would remain impressed on the memory, making knowledge visible, as it were. What could be simpler than teaching world history, geography, natural history, botany, zoology, anatomy, and so on in that way? He had his memoir printed and sent a copy to every deputy, ten to every minister, fifty to the President of the Republic, ten to every Parisian paper, and five to the provincial papers. Then he dealt with the question of mobile lending libraries, suggesting that the state should arrange for little carts full of books to be drawn around the streets like orange carts. Every citizen would be entitled to borrow ten books a month in return for a subscription of one sou. The people, wrote M. Sacrement, will only put themselves out for the sake of their pleasures, and since they won't go in search of education, education must come to them, and so on and so forth. These pamphlets failed to attract any notice, but he sent in his application all the same. He received a reply saying that the matter was receiving attention, that inquiries were being made. He felt sure of success and waited patiently. Nothing happened. Then he made up his mind to take action on his own behalf. He asked for an interview with the Minister of Education and was received by an official who was quite young but already solemn, even pompous, and who kept pressing a series of little white buttons as if he were playing the piano to summon ushers and messengers as well as subordinate officials. He assured the visitor that his application was going well and advised him to persevere with his admirable research. Monsieur Sacrement accordingly set to work again. Monsieur Rosselin, the deputy, now seemed to take a great interest in his success and even gave him a lot of excellent practical advice. 
Incidentally, Monsieur Rosselin was decorated, although it was not known precisely what he had done to deserve such distinction. He suggested new subjects for Monsieur Sacrament to study, and introduced him to learned societies which concerned themselves with especially obscure points of human knowledge in the hope of obtaining honor and recognition. He even recommended him to the ministry. One day, when he was lunching at his friend's house, in the past few months he had become a frequent guest there, he whispered to him as he shook hands, I've just obtained a great favor for you. The Committee for Historical Studies has entrusted you with a commission. It's a question of research to be carried out in various libraries all over France. Sacrament was so excited by the news that he nearly fainted and could scarcely eat or drink. He set off a week later. He went from town to town, studying catalogues, rummaging in lofts full of dusty old books, and earning the hatred of librarians. One evening, happening to find himself in Rouen, he decided to drop in on his wife, whom he had not seen for a week, and he took the nine o'clock train which would get him home at midnight. He had his latch key with him, and he let himself into the house quietly, delighted at the idea of giving her a surprise. Unfortunately, he found that she had locked herself in her room. He shouted through the door, Jeanne, it's me! She was obviously very frightened, for he heard her jump out of bed, talking to herself as if she were dreaming. Then she dashed into her dressing room, opened and closed the door, and ran around her bedroom several times in bare feet, shaking the furniture so that the glass doors and ornaments rattled. Then at last she asked, "'Is it really you, Alexandre?' "'Of course it's me,' he replied. "'Open the door!' The door was unlocked, and his wife threw herself into his arms, exclaiming, "'Oh, what a fright you gave me! What a surprise! What a joy!' Then he started undressing, carefully and methodically, as he did everything, and from a chair he picked up his overcoat, which he was in the habit of hanging in the hall. But suddenly he stopped in astonishment. There was a red ribbon in the buttonhole. His wife rushed at him and tore the coat out of his hands. No, she said, you've made a mistake. Let me have it. But he hung on to it by one of the sleeves, refusing to let it go, and repeating in a kind of daze, Why? Just explain. Whose is this overcoat? It isn't mine, because it's got the Legion of Honor on it. She tried to pull it away from him in a panic, stammering, Listen, listen, let go of it, it's a secret, listen to me. But he was growing angry, and had turned pale. I want to know what this overcoat is doing here. It isn't mine. Then she shouted at him, Yes, it is. Listen to me, promise. Well, the fact is, you've been decorated. He was so overcome that he let go of the overcoat and dropped into an armchair. I've been... You say I've been decorated? Yes, but it's a secret, a great secret. She had put the glorious garment in a cupboard and came back to her husband, pale and trembling. Yes, she went on, it's a new overcoat I've had made for you, but I promised I wouldn't say anything to you about it, because it won't be announced for a month or six weeks. You weren't supposed to know about it until your mission was over. It was Monsieur Rosselin who fixed it for you. Rosselin, stammered Sacrement, faint with delight.
He got the decoration for me. He, oh, and he was obliged to drink a glass of water. A little piece of white pasteboard had fallen out of one of the pockets of the overcoat and was lying on the floor. Sacramont picked it up. It was a visiting card. He read out, Roslin, deputy. You see, said his wife, and he started crying with joy. A week later, the officiel announced that Monsieur Sacramont had been appointed a chevalier of the Legion of Honor for exceptional services. You've been listening to The Graveyard Sisterhood and The Decoration by Guy de Maupassant. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. Drop me a line, if you will, with your thoughts about the show and what kind of stories you'd enjoy hearing. My email address is rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. I'd love to hear from you. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, and let's be careful out there, because you're important. All the best. (laughs) 